0: church is God's people. The church are those whom God has uh, called out of darkness and into his light. Uh, The church are those whom God has saved. The church are those people whom God has loved first and has loved into loving him. And the church exists now true christians exist under god here on earth to be a testimony of god to be a display to the world of how how good god is how how gracious god is how how perfect and holy god is and so god loves his people and Fills his people, and they worship him and exalt him and exalt in him. And we do that in the context of the world. So we do that in front of people. We do that with people. We do that alongside people. And the purpose is that people would see that, and God would be glorified through that. He would be glorified, which means that his godness would be displayed. His beauty would be displayed. Which is why the instruction for us in Matthew chapter 5 is to let your light shine before men. That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So it's it's an interesting transaction that takes place. It is that you are displaying something and you're doing something. And at first appearance, it looks like it's your goodness and your greatness. But the whole point of that is that people would actually see through you and beyond you and, and, and get that God is the one who's really good. So the church, we as Christians, are supposed to be that kind of a display to the world around us of how good and great and gracious and loving and holy is the God that we serve. Now that testimony of the church is going to be damaged if there are people who are recognized and are part of or think that they are a part of the church and belong to Jesus, but they don't know Him, they don't love Him, and therefore incapable of displaying to the world around them. How good and great God is. Because they actually don't think that God is that good or that great. And so one of the things that has happened. In the, in the church. We can observe this. Is that there are many who are in the, the visible church. In other words what you see on a Sunday. There are many who are identifying and saying, yes, I am in the church. In other words, I am a Christian. Whether or not they're even here on a Sunday, let's say. Yes, I am a Christian. But in fact, if they're not a Christian, if they don't know Jesus, if they're not saved, then they are unable to fulfill God's will through the church and that is to display His glory. And so what's happened today is we have a a, a testimony that is supposed to be bright and a, a testimony that is supposed to be true, but it's a testimony that has gotten very muddled because the church is not even a group of Christians anymore. And one of the ways that that happens, because you wonder, well, how does that happen? How do we get lots of people who are not Christians calling themselves Christians and identifying with the church? And, and that is that we take the gospel... Very lightly. We don't understand what the gospel is. We change the gospel to something like God loves you. Do you believe that? Okay, you're a Christian. Come on in. But they actually haven't heard the gospel. And they haven't understood the gospel. And so we have this this weak presentation of the gospel. Often, but the last 300 years. Especially just in our country. Sort of going downhill. Downhill. Just add more water and more water and more water and more water and dilute it and dilute it and dilute it and water it down and water it down and water it down until it's something like God loves you. Just try your hardest and you're a Christian. And so, that is, and so we have also just unbiblical view of what conversion is. What does it mean to to convert? To go from being outside the church to inside the church? To go from being not a Christian to being a Christian? What does that conversion look like? And it's not just, okay, at the end of my sermon, I'm going to say if you're emotional right now, walk forward. And then when you walk forward, I'm going to say a prayer, and you're going to repeat that prayer. And if you repeat that prayer, I might as well get a stamp out, and you can put your hand out. We'll do like a cool black light glow-in-the-dark thing, and I'll stamp Christian on your hand. It's not just repeating a prayer after me. It's not even just saying a prayer. It's not saying any words. It's not following some kind of an an instruction that is given by a, a pastor or a conference speaker or any of those things. Conversion is, is much more than this thing that we think that we do. Conversion is something that the Holy Spirit does within us. It's called regeneration, where he gives you new life. You're dead, you're alive. You're blind, you see. It completely transformed out of light and, and into darkness. But when we teach that conversion is something other than that, and it's just you repeating after me. What happens is you start having this easy believism. It's very easy to believe and anybody can do it and just come forward and follow these rules. And now you can be a part of, of this Christian thing. And by the way, the way we get you to do that is we, just, we scare you by telling you how terrible hell is. Then I mean, all you have to do to avoid hell. Don't worry about how you live your life. All you have to do is say some words after me. I mean, who's not going to do that? I mean, that's the cost. I just walk forward and I repeat a prayer and, and I get baptized and then that's it? So we've taught that that's what conversion is and so now we've injured the testimony of the church by filling the church with people who are to display God's glory when they don't even think God is that great. And it doesn't happen. So the church becomes less and less and less effective. Now add to that, and we talked about this Thursday night, in our baptism class, add to that a misunderstanding of what baptism is and how significant baptism is and what baptism actually signifies. And it is not just to be something that you do following, saying some words or following some decision that you think you make. It is far more important than that. But what we've seen over the last few centuries is more and more and more and more people are getting baptized, but somehow we have less and less people devoted to Jesus in the church. Because what baptism is supposed to be is an outward sign, a visible sign, a display of an inward grace. So God has done something inwardly. Regeneration, born again. And then we do Baptism following that conversion as a display of that. But that's not what we think baptism is. We don't understand the importance of baptism. That baptism is meant to be a symbol of being united to Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That baptism is to be a display of us being washed clean and having our sins forgiven through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. That baptism is supposed to be a symbol that we have passed through the waters of God's judgment and we have been granted safe passage because of what Jesus has done. That's what it's supposed to symbolize. So when we baptize people that have not been united to Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection, who have not had their sins forgiven, who have not been washed clean, who have not yet passed safely through the waters of God's judgment, what we do then is we lie We lie to the world we're supposed to be a testimony to. We lie to those who are around us by saying, this person has been saved, they have been changed, they have been transformed, and they have not. Now that is going to happen no matter what. Because we cannot see the what? We can't see the heart. So that is going to happen. We we are going to in the church baptize people who are not Christians. That, That is going to happen because we can judge as best we can but we cannot see the heart. But if that's happening because we're being flippant about baptism and we're being flippant about the gospel and we're being flippant about conversion and we're not bothering to understand what God's word teaches then shame on us. Then it's not we're being diligent. We're being responsible. Looking for the inward grace so that the out, so it may be displayed outwardly. If we're not being diligent in that, and then ultimately trusting that God, you know the heart. But if we're not doing that, we're just saying, no, just never mind. Let's just get people in the door. Let's just get them in the church. Let's just get them in the water. Then we, then we become a lending hand in the deception of some. And then later on in their life, when when they start to battle and their conscience begins to tell them, you're not a Christian. But that church baptized me. That pastor baptized me. They told me I was a Christian. And people will do this. So, I'll suppress that. Never mind the Holy Spirit gets quenched because men in the church were irresponsible about teaching God's truth in regards to the gospel, in regards to true conversion, in regards to baptism. And so an example of that over the last couple hundred years, the the age at which we will baptize children is getting younger and younger and younger and younger. A few hundred years ago, The average age was like 16. Charles Spurgeon was 16. His two sons baptized them at age 18. And that number has gone down and down and down and down. And one of the reasons, I think, not to say that a child cannot understand the gospel and, and can be converted and can be saved. That is possible. But the age has come down and down and down and down because we are quick. We're quick to put a stamp and say, Christian, saved because we're not understanding what the Bible says about these things. Now I'll say all that because one of the things that realizing as we taught through baptism on Thursday night, and this will tie into 1 John 2, 3 through 6 as well, is that many of you, in fact, had an experience in your life that you called baptism, but it actually was no baptism at all. Because when you evaluate, you were not converted. It was not an outward display of an inward grace because there was not yet a work of inward grace. If that is you, you have not been baptized. And we encourage you to be baptized. Only you can answer that question. But I would encourage each of you to evaluate your life. Because we are prone to this because we don't understand baptism, understand conversion, understand the gospel. We've been quick to do such things. Evaluate your life. And look back. And if you're one of them. And and when you were baptized, you can say, I was. I wasn't mature, of course not. And I had a lot of growing to do. But no, I understood the gospel. I had turned from my sin. I had turned to Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Then you were baptized. If you look back and you realize. No there was a later point. Where I understood the gospel. Where I turned from my sin. And I turned to Jesus. And that point was. After your baptism. Then we would instruct you to get baptized. Because you actually have not been baptized yet. So it won't even be called a rebaptism. <laughs> we're not doing it again. We'd be doing it for the first time. So. There were many who were not here on, on Thursday night. And so that's why I bring that up. And I want to make sure that we all understand the importance of this. And now here we're going to get into 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6. through 6. If you have your Bible, open there. And we're going to read as John is going to continue to confront... Uh, False teaching. He's going to continue to confront those who who call themselves Christians and who, in actuality, are not Christians. Those of you who have read through 1 John, you know that one of the purposes of John is is he wants to do a couple things. Uh, He wants to assure the Christians that they are saved, and he wants to assure the non Christians that they are not saved. He just wants to draw the line on his hand and make sure everybody knows so that they can have joy and so that they can repent and turn from their sin and turn to Jesus lest they go the rest of their lives deceived. And so he is he is writing in such a way that through most of our study of this book it is going to be uncomfortable for us. Which is reading the Bible by the way. I mean, if reading the Bible is never uncomfortable for you, you might not be reading your Bible. Reading your Bible often will cause you to be uncomfortable. Because there are going to be things in there that your, your sinful nature just does not like and rejects and wants to malign or ignore. But there's going to be a lot of things that John's going to say that, that will make us very uncomfortable. Because what John is trying to do, one of the things that John is trying to do is cause the church, people in the church, listening to preaching, reading his letter, to examine their faith. And that's uncomfortable. To do as as, as Peter says, to, to make your calling and election sure To, as it says elsewhere in the New Testament, to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. And those are uncomfortable things to look at. You've probably had people counsel you before. I can remember times where I started to do that and and well-meaning Christians would come around me and say, don't ask questions like that. Of course you're saved. When were you baptized? (laughs) You're good. You did the deed. Looking back at some event rather than my faith. But, but, but God's word calls us to examine our faith. That's very uncomfortable for us to do. So just be prepared for that. So take your guard down. And really, really examine yourself. The worst thing that could happen is you discover that you're actually not a Christian. But the good news is, is that you're hearing the gospel and so you can become a Christian right away. You can put your faith in Jesus and you can trust him and you can love him and you can follow him. So, so we, we might really freak you out and give you some really bad news, but then we give you the good news right away. So it's okay, sort of. So John is writing. John is writing to this church that's had false teaching come in and it is compromising their fellowship with one another, their fellowship with God, It's compromising their their joy. They're just not as happy as they used to be because they're believing things that are not true. When you believe things that are not true, it's going to rob you of of your joy. Some of you have experienced that. Now today, one major obstacle, and this is evident today, to Christians not having the joy that they should have is no assurance of salvation. No assurance of salvation. If you are a Christian... And, and, and you don't have a assurance that you're a Christian. In other words, you, you say to yourself often, I don't know whether or not I'm a Christian. Your joy is going to be compromised. Your happiness in Christ is going to be compromised. One of the greatest sources of our joy as Christians is being sure of our salvation and knowing and believing what Christ has done for us and in us and through us. So that's a great obstacle to fellowship, a great obstacle to joy. But another obstacle to fellowship, another obstacle to joy is not um, a lack of assurance where there should be, but false assurance where there should be no assurance. There are also those who think, I'm good. And the truth is, you're not. And you're not even a Christian. And you're not saved. So you actually go around thinking that everything's fine. And everything's good. But the truth is. It's not. And you're in danger. And you're still an object of wrath. You're under the wrath of God. And so you think that there is fellowship. And you think there's joy. But it's false fellowship. And it's false joy. These are important things John has us looking at. Let's pray. And we'll get started in verse 3 through 6. I, I spent some time talking about da- baptism and some of you are freaking out because you're like, he's just starting a sermon and he usually preaches an hour or so. Are we even going to get out by dinner? So I'm going to adjust. I'm going to adjust the sermon. So just, so if, you, some of you, if you're freaking out, let's pray. Father in heaven, help these people not to freak out. God, we love you. And, and, and this time, we, we want it to be free from distraction. We want to be free from worry and free from anxiety. We want to be able to hear from you. So God, any, uh, any obstacles that are, that are in the way of that, any, any walls that are up, any walls that even I've put up, God, whatever has transpired or taken place, God, please take all of that away that your word may ring right and true in everyone's ears and everyone's hearts here this afternoon. God, we love you and we're humbled by the truth of your word. Help us to see and know and understand you. We give you praise and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's happening in John's church, whoever it is that he is writing to, is a, is a lack of assurance. And we can gather from, from reading this letter why. Why are they uncertain of their salvation? Why are they so worried? One of the reasons is that people have left their church. People have left their church. We read about that in chapter 2, verse 19, and we'll go through it more in a couple weeks, but people have left their church. Not just people, but it would seem that, that friends left, which is very difficult when that happens. Um, respectable people, people that they looked up to. Perhaps they were teachers, people that they listened to and they have walked away from the church and it doesn't just look like they walked away from the church. It it appears that they've even just walked away from the faith. They've walked away from Jesus. So what it looks like to the people that John's writing to is we had some people and they were Christians and now they're not Christians anymore and that's going to leave people very unsettled. And so they're asking themselves, you know, these people were, were like me. And so what's to say that that's not going to happen to me? And John, didn't you teach us that that wasn't possible? John, didn't you say that, that once we belong to Jesus, that, that once we're Christians, that, that no one, right John chapter 10 verse 28, that no one can snatch us from his hand? Or in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work is faithful and just to complete that work? Didn't you, didn't you teach us, John, that, that once God saves us, he doesn't unsave us? He doesn't, he doesn't grab us and snatch us up and then let us go? But isn't that what we've seen happen? Haven't we seen people? You've had this experience, I'm sure. that, that were Christians. I mean, they were solid. They were family members. They were parents. They were friends. There are people you considered family in your church. And, and they were one of us. And, and then they just left. And they were a Christian. This is what you think. Right? They were Christians. And now they're not Christians. So how can I have any assurance of salvation? What's to say that that same thing is, is not going to happen to me? The question that they're asking, John, is, is Jesus going to let me go too? You said he wouldn't, but he has. Is he going to let me go too? And so first... John chapter 2 verse 19. He, he settles this for them theologically at least. Trying to meet their lack of assurance. He says, They went out from us. So he's talking obviously about this group that left. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of of us. You see what John says? So he he maintains what he taught that Jesus never lets any of his own go. He says the truth is they were never Christians to begin with. What does he say? Actually, they were not of us. If they were of us, They would have continued in the faith. He's making that very point. No one snatches people out of Jesus' hands. So it can look like somebody is a Christian. Someone can on the outside externally go through the right motions. But they're not actually saved. There's other motives. There's other reasons. There's other things that they're doing. There's misunderstanding. Whatever it is. The gospel has been shared, but it's, it's fallen on stony ground or it's fallen in thorns or then weeds come and choke it out. It, it, it's, it's quick or it's temporary, but it's actually not real faith. It's not believing Jesus Christ and trusting Him. So he maintains that and says, okay, listen, it's still true. Once you are a Christian in God's hands, Jesus does not lose Christians. He doesn't misplace you. What I do? He doesn't misplace you. He doesn't get fed up with you. He doesn't get frustrated. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God. He doesn't say, okay, that's it. I've got a limit. You've tapped it out. Goodbye. He doesn't do that. So he reminds them of that truth. But, but there's still going to be a lack of assurance because then the question is, well, how do I know then that Jesus really has me right now? Right, those of you who are analytical and introspective, you, you kill yourself with questions like this. Okay, so he doesn't let me go, but how do I know that he actually has me right now? But it is a legitimate concern. Because it, it looks like some of them temporarily thought they were saved and actually they were not. So how do I know that I'm saved? And he's going to answer that. He's going to answer that in First John And he's going to give one of the answers today. But then the second thing that's happening is that there is this assurance of people who really don't look like Christians anymore. And it's just terribly confusing for those who are trying to sort through this. We hear this over and over and over again. John confronts these teachers. Listen to these verses. He keeps referring to if they say or whoever says. So people are saying these things to them. And this is how they're living. Listen to it over and over again. 1, chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. So there are people who saying are saying we have fellowship with him, but they're walking in the darkness. Or verse chapter 1, 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin. Verse 10. If we say we have not sin. 2, verse 4. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments. Chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says... He is in the light and hates his brother. Chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. So there's this false teaching where people are saying they're Christians, but they don't look like Christians. And then there are those who have watched these people leave that they thought were good Christians. And so they don't have the fellowship and the joy that they could have because they're doubting their salvation. So John writes to them, and he gives in the book of 1 John, commentators agree, three different tests. A test. How do I know that I'm saved? Or how do I know that I'm not saved, right? Because there's also this false assurance that he wants to confront. So he goes through three tests. And the first one is in our text today. Verse 4 says, we'll go back to verse 3. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He talks about obeying God's commandments 14 times in this little letter of 1 John. And so his first statement is in regards to people saying that they know God. And his meaning here is not just knowing about God, not just knowing facts about Him, or not just knowing Him by seeing Him evidenced in other people's lives or in churches. He means a personal knowledge, knowing him, knowing him as a friend, knowing him as a brother, know him on a personal level. Now, here's a scary thing. We live in a culture where everyone knows God in that sense. Most people in our culture claim to have that kind of knowledge, personal knowledge, If you ask people, no, I mean know him personally. In other words, you and God are are clear. You and God are are okay. He's he's all right with you. You're all right with him. When this is over, you're going to be with him. He looks at your life. He smiles. That kind of personal communion and knowing God. And the truth is that most people in, in our country say, yeah, I know God that way. Very few people acknowledge God and say, oh, yeah, and he's very unhappy with me. Nobody says that. Everybody has their own little system and their own little ladder that they've developed to get to God and they think they've climbed it and they're okay, whatever it is. So the question is, okay, how do we know? How do we know who actually really knows him? And so in verse four, John says, if you say you know him, but do not keep his commandments, you're a liar. That settles that one. He speaks bluntly. Here's this first test. If you say you're a Christian, if you say you know him, yet you do not keep his commandments, you're a liar. You don't know him. The truth is not in you. You you can't say that you know God and disobey him. I mean, even if you have a a very limited understanding of who God is, you should know that you should obey him. I mean, if God is the creator. Okay, so God, the Bible teaches, God made you. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. God made you. And because God made you, God owns you. And that's uncomfortable language for us. Nobody owns me. Well, uh, no, you're right. No person can ever own you. No sinner could ever own you. But God owns you. He owns you because he, he made you. You can't get out of that one. God says, I'm the potter and you're the clay. And so you argue with me and you talk back to me and you're... And God looks at us and says, are you kidding? This is a joke, right? I made you. (laughs) I created you. Any rights that you have are rights that I gave you. Any freedoms or liberties you have are freedoms and liberties that I gave you. You belong to me. I mean, a very basic understanding of God allows that we should obey whatever he says to do. What you say is what I I need to do. But here's what's happened where not obeying God's commands has crept into the church is that we have understood just enough of God's mercy to be dangerous. So we hear things like, well, God is gracious and God is merciful. And so what, what our sinful mind does with that is we just hear enough of the gospel and tune everything else out, but we hear, okay, God is merciful. God is gracious. Therefore, I can do whatever I want to do. I can disobey His commandments because God is merciful. God is gracious. And actually, what your Bible says, He says, that is worse. That is worse than the non-believer. That's worse than the one who doesn't know God the one who's disobeying him outside of any knowledge of him, to to actually know him and to know his grace and to know his mercy and then to say, okay, so that is a license for me to sin is even worse. But that's what we do if we misunderstand God's mercy. So we've got to remember what John has already said about his mercy. He has been merciful to us by sending Jesus to get punished for our sin. So in other words, it says this elsewhere in the Bible, when you continue in sin like that, and you think that God's mercy is like a license, it's like crucifying Jesus again. It's like walking up to the cross and grabbing a nail and putting it through his wrist. That's how sharply the Bible talks about this abuse of grace. And yet that's the kind of not taking our sin seriously that is really prevalent in the church today. And the reason I think that we don't take sin as seriously as we ought to is because we have misunderstood maybe or focused too much on a misunderstanding of what God's mercy is. God's mercy is not him just, oh it's okay, just sweeping under the carpet and it's all right. and I'm a big God, I can take whatever sin you give me and I'll just keep taking care of it. That is not a biblical understanding. It is that Jesus paid the price for our sin. He died and suffered because of what you just did. And what you're going to do tomorrow. And what you're going to do a week from now. He suffered and died because of that. If we didn't do all of that, he wouldn't have suffered. But because we're sinners, he did. And so, if we understand that, then why would I want to sin? Why would I want to disobey his commands? Why would I look for loopholes in this? Why would I try to figure out how to have it my way and just bend the rules? Why would I do that? Unless. Unless I abuse his mercy. Verse (laughs) 5. So now here's the alternative. The good alternative. So he speaks very harshly, he says, listen, if you you say you know him, you're not keeping his commandments, you're a liar. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. So there are those who keep his word. He's just saying it differently. Keep his commandments and you, the love of God, literally your love for God is fully perfected. In other words, you're fully loving God if you obey his commands. You do know him. And that's what John said in his gospel. John chapter 14 verse 21. Whoever has my command, Jesus said this to his disciples. Whoever has my commands and obeys them. He is the one who loves me. And I too will love him and show myself to him. And the father will. He who has my commands and obeys them. And so he's reiterating this now. Saying here is the test. Am I a Christian? Do I know God? Do you keep his commandments? He's just explained in verse 4 and 5 what he said in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That is the first test. I want to be assured of my salvation. Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? John says, are you keeping his commandments? He says that word three times, keep. Is, Is it important to you to follow God's law? Is holiness important to you? Keep his commandments. The word carries connotations of, of guarding it and treasuring it. Do you think about these things? Or do you have this sort of ignorance is bliss mentality? And I, I don't want to understand too many of the commandments because then I'll just be accountable to them. Ha, ha, ha. We say things like that. Or do you want to know more of what God's Word says? Do you want to hear more instruction? Do you want to hear more of what is pleasing to Him so that you can follow these instructions, so that you can live according to His Word, so that you can keep His commandments? So John says, Christians, you love Him and so you obey Him. But he says, there's some who are among you who are unbelievers. You don't love Him and you don't obey Him. Hosea 4, 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So there's disobedience because there's no knowledge. They don't know him. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So in verse 6 he says, By this we may know that we are in him. He just says it another way. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Keep his word. Obey his commandments. Walk as Jesus walked. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow Christ's example of love. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Do you love God's Word? Do you, this is the test. Do you love God's law? Do you have a, an unchristian view of such things? Do you see God's Word? Do you see God's law? Do you see that as a way of making our life miserable so that we will really appreciate heaven? then you don't know him. Do you see God's law as some big test for you? And God is just seeing if you will pass the test and then depending on how well you do, that'll determine whether or not you go to heaven. You misunderstand God's word. You misunderstand God's law. Listen to how the writers in the Old Testament and New Testament talked about God's word and God's law. Psalm 48, I delight to do your will. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. And do you really think that David was saying that just because in that particular case, God's will was really pleasing to him? And if God wanted him to do something he didn't want to do, well, I'm not delighting in this one. No, he's, he's talking about all of God's word. No matter what the, the repercussions are for his life. No matter what it means for his life. He says, I delight in following you. I delight in obeying you. You can't say that about any person. Oh, I just del- I love, I delight obeying. I just love it when somebody walks in and they tell me what to do. As Americans, we, we res- totally resist that, right? We don't like that. Very few of you like to be told what to do. And even fewer of you like to be told what you do when you don't want to do it. I really wanted to go this way. Well, no, you need to go this way. Oh, I just love that about you. <laughs> I love that. I was, I was excited to go this way. And I was all resolved to do this. You came in. You totally messed it all up. And now I have to go this way. I love that. Thank you. I delight in you. We don't think that way. That's absurd. But. With God, with God, it's different. We delight in Him. Paul says the same thing. It wasn't just some Old Testament fog they were in. Paul says in Romans 7:22, "I delight in the law of God, in my inner being." We delight in God's law. We, we delight in obeying His law. We delight in following His word. Specifically, we, we have what, what John is going to talk about throughout this book is, is Jesus Christ and, and his commands. And he affirmed much of what we read in the Old Testament. All this, all, everything that had to do with right and wrong and morality. Jesus comes in, he affirms this and says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. And we delight in, in doing these things. And when we break it down and we try to determine, well, what should I do here? And what should I do here? And what does this mean for my life and for my family? And when we understand what God's Word has to say, we should delight in obeying God. We shouldn't do it begrudgingly. And we shouldn't look for ways to not do it. Three truths from God's Word in summary. What are... Why do we love obeying God's word? Why do we love keeping his commandments as John calls us to do? Number one, obedience to God's law keeps our life safe. Obedience to God's law keeps our life safe. In other words, this is the point that John is making. You have assurance that you are safe. You have assurance that you are safe are set apart. That you are saved. That The inheritance of Jesus will be your inheritance if you keep his commandments. If you're the kind of Christian that doesn't keep God's commandments, John says that is not a kind of a Christian. So obedience from God's law, it, it keeps us safe. You remember Daniel did this in the Old Testament. And for Daniel, the safe choice was to go to a den of lions. (laughs) That was what he opted for to stay safe. Think about that. He could have just stopped praying to God. And that seems to be the safe thing. Um, Pray to God and you're going to get eaten by a lion. Stop praying to God or just pretend on the outside, Daniel. Just, Just appease them and then when you're you know, in private, you can still do your prayer. But at least, you know, tell them, yeah, okay, I'm all done with that God praying thing. I mean, I mean do that. And then you'll, you'll be safe. But for Daniel, what was the safe choice? It was to keep his commandments. It was to keep his commandments. And so he went to a lion's den. Number two, by obedience to God's law, our lives become more fruitful. Keep his commandments, that your life may be more fruitful. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 6. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out." Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If you are obeying God's word, if you are keeping his commandments, this is the way to a fruitful life. Now, it's not saying that necessarily, okay, so do these things and follow these rules, and that's going to trigger something in God. He's going to say, okay, I'm going to reward you with all of these things. But actually the very means to living a fruitful life is living your life in God's way. The way he calls you to live your life. The way he calls you to work in the workplace. The way he calls you to be with your husband or your wife. The way he calls you to, to, to be a member in a church and to interact with your church. The way he calls you to raise your children. Actually, if you want to have a fruitful life and if you want to have a blessed life, it is better to go God's way. We teach our children this, and it's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Honor your father and mother. Obey God that it may go well with you. I mean, God's the one who designed everything. And so it will go well with you if you go the way that God calls you to go. What that looks like is when you're obeying God, when you're honoring God, when you're following God, it will go well with you because even when circumstances don't go well, You have this bedrock of hope in Christ. But we must be people who obey God's commandments, who obey his word, who follow him. And then third, obedience to God's law makes our lives joyful. If you have your Bible, Psalm 119. Read this together. Psalm chapter 119, verse 92, and then verse 97 through 112. I want you to hear the joy that comes from obeying God's word. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. In verse 97 through 112, listen. Oh, how I love your law. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Verse 97 again. Oh, how I love your law. We don't, th- we don't think like that. I love your grace. I love your mercy. I love Jesus. I love forgiveness. I love community. I love fellowship. I mean, those roll off the tongue easier. Then, I mean, it's this worship song. About, I love your rules. Is what the psalmist says. I love your law. Now, that last point was very important. Obeying the law of God makes me joyful. Because when we say, I love your rules, I love your precepts, I love your law, the legalist hears that and says, Amen. But they don't say it with a smile. Because there's no joy. Amen. I love rules. <laughs> love them, I love them, I love them. I love God's law. I love his precepts. Amen and Amen. See, the legalist likes that because they totally misunderstand God's law and they think we're justified by God's law. So the more rules, the better. At least rules that I can keep. Then I can feel better than everybody. I can feel justified before God I can go to sleep thinking I'm a good person because I've obeyed his laws. That's not what John is talking about. That's not what John is talking about talking about a Christian who obeys God's commandments with a mindset that says not only do I have to I get to God has actually been gracious enough to tell me what pleases him I love it I I like to make my wife happy. I really do. I like to make my kids happy. I talked about that like a few weeks ago. You do too with the people you love, I hope. You love to see them smile. Sometimes I'll do something for my wife maybe or or bring my wife something or sometimes I'll, I'll, I'm getting better at this but I'll I'll buy her clothes or I'll, I'll buy her something pretty and there have been times where I have presented something to her And I have said, my wife, and I've given her something. And my motives weren't totally pure. Not totally pure, because I I just was wanting something in return. Aren't you happy with me? Um, What a giving husband I am. I, I thought of you in the middle of my day instead of working. I mean, how holy is that? I mean, do you even know any other guys that do that for their wives? Probably not. I mean, that was really cool what I just did for you. you. You can you recognize that real quick? Could you sing me to me a song maybe about it? Write me a song about it. <laughs> you okay, just write it down. Tell me how great I am. Maybe not the purest of motives, but I've done that before and I've done that, and um, and I can tell when she really likes something, or when she is. God bless her, doing her best to make me think that she really likes it. <laughs> I completely know the difference. And she gets a smile. Oh, thank you. with her eyes, there's a smile, but the eyes, nothing else moves. It's just Thank you. And I know. Oh. And at first, when I hear that, I'm, I'm proud. I'm like, what do you mean? This is great. <laughs> and what I've done is Great. You should love me more for this. And I have good taste, I want to think. Same thing when I walk out. It just happened today. I walked out and was getting ready to come to worship. And I, and I, did, the, I did the usual check. And she doesn't, doesn't flower it up, nothing. She says, no, that looks terrible. You need to go change. <laughs> All right. Need to work on my pride today. Thank you very much. I go back and change. So same thing, I'll give her something and, and and I'll and I'll know she doesn't I'll know that she doesn't like it. And it may be frustrating for her, but here's the thing, okay, because I really I really do love her. So I'm actually I'm really glad because what's happened over eleven years is that I can get kind of sharper with this and I learn more what pleases her, what she loves, what she likes, so that I can I can give that to her. And, and some of you have experienced that. When you really love somebody, when you really, really care about somebody, okay, pride and everything aside, you, you want to make them happy. You want to be what's going to make them happy. You want to give them things that are going to make them happy and fill them with joy. There's, there's, it's one of the best feelings that you can, you can even have. And so in your relationship with God, His law... Is God revealing to you? And, and you love this about God. You delight that he would, he would care enough to write this down. And say this is what I want from you. This is how I want you to live. This is, this is how I want you to make decisions. This is how I want you to raise your family. This is how I want you to interact with your church. This is how I want you to use your mouth. This is how I want you to take your thoughts captive. This is the kind of fruit I'm looking for in your life. This is how I want you to pray. This is how I want you to worship. And he he lays this all out and God is telling you, this is what is pleasing to me. And if Christian, see the one who is not a Christian, this is the test. He's saying, I don't want that. I I want to be autonomous and independent and I want to love God the way I want to love God. I want to worship him the way I want to worship him. I want to have my own rules. I don't want to be confronted. I don't want to be rebuked. I don't want anything. I just want to do it my way. You don't, you may not love God. You just love your idea of God. And so John's test for them is, will you keep His commandments? Will you delight in keeping His commandments? So for those in the church and for those of you who are lacking that assurance, who are lacking that joy, you, you may just, in this degree, be settled because of what John is saying. You may be able to leave here today with greater hope than you even came in and confidence in what Christ has done for you if you delight to keep his commandments. God, even when it's painful, even when I don't like it, even when this is rough, even when it's the way I don't want to go, ultimately, God, I love your law. I love that you have laid out for me how you want to be worshiped. Because what's the gospel heart is, God, you've been so gracious to me. You've given me so much. You have sent your son Jesus to die for me. I want to please you. I want to love you. And you actually define how to do that. It's not just a mystery. Thank you, God. And so John says, those of you who keep his commandments like that, you know him. And I know those people left and you're wondering, but he says, you will always know him. He is your God. And let me remind you what I said in chapter 10, verse 28. No one will snatch you out of his hand. So have a good night, John says. But then he says to those, right? He exposes those with the false assurance. Yeah, we know God. It's all good. He says, are you keeping his commandments that way? Well, no. No. And what are John's words? Liar. You're a liar. What's he doing? He's shaking him. Snap out of this. Your your worship, it's a lie. Repent. Turn to Jesus and be saved. So for those of you who or having your, your security in Christ affirmed, communion is a great celebration. It's this family meal we share together, and we're going to serve you. We ask you to come up and, and take the bread and juice back to your seat, and we'll, we'll take it all together as a, as a family. For those of you who, who just have that assurance by this first test John gives, just pulled out from under, underneath you, then when the time of communion comes, when people are around and they're celebrating the death of Jesus Christ, it should be a time of fear for you. Or you realize that you are outside of that family perhaps and you need to become right with God. And the only way you can become right with God is not anything in you, but it is taking hold of what Christ has done on the cross. And so you may take hold of that now even, See, I turn from my sin. I turn from my way. I'm going to stop doing it my way. I I know that this is is not pleasing to God. I know that I cannot. It is only through Jesus that I'm reconciled to God. That you may have that assurance then. Be saved. Let me pray. We'll share this meal together. Our Father in heaven, thank you um, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, To live a life that was perfect and without sin. So that he alone was qualified to die in our place. Not to be punished for his own sin. But to be punished for our sin then. Thank you Jesus for your willingness in going to the cross. And drinking that cup. and, And suffering more than all the suffering in the history of the world combined. Taking all the wrath of God upon yourself. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for those of us who are saved, for opening our eyes to this truth, for revealing to us how good you, God, have been to us. For those in this room who who are not saved, God, we love them and ask that you would open their eyes, open their hearts, that they may turn from sin and turn to Jesus. This is our hope always. This is our prayer always. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.